0: in an era where data privacy and data protection are really important right now, you're creating a situation where you actually have increased risk.
1: On this episode of Coindesk Live, Lockdown Edition, Coindesk's Aaron Stanley speaks with Amy Devine Kim, the Chief Policy Officer at the Chamber of Digital Commerce, about the Financial Action Task Force, why it's tricky to apply the travel rule to Bitcoin, and the opposing ideals of regulating cryptocurrency. This episode was live engineered by John Biggs, edited by Rob Mitchell, and sponsored by Aris X, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. We join the conversation in progress now.
2: Thanks for everyone for joining us. Good afternoon. Welcome to another edition of Point Desk Live Lockdown Edition, where we offer a sneak preview of the speakers and content that you'll find at Consensus Distributed, which is happening May 11th through 15th in lieu of physical New York blockchain week, which for obvious reasons, we're moving things online and virtual this year. So today we're going to be discussing one of the thornier subjects in the crypto sphere, which is a new set of anti-money laundering recommendations from the financial action task force that are scheduled to take effect for cryptocurrency businesses next month. There's a pretty compelling argument to made here that these recommendations, most notably the travel rule, are the most important regulatory issue currently facing the industry. More so than token taxonomy more so than custody or or taxation or any of these other areas. Here to help us better understand just what the travel rule is and what these FATF recommendations are and really why they matter to the cryptocurrency community is Amy Davine Kim, who is the Chief Policy Officer at the Chamber of Digital Commerce in Washington, D.C., and she's also a native of the great state of Minnesota, where I am currently sheltered in place. Thanks for being here, Amy.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Amy has been on the front lines for several years representing the industry at the FATF and related forums, and she'll also be speaking at Consensus Distributed on May 13th as part of our travel rule workshop, where we will have a three-hour powwow looking at all things travel rule. We'll have a a keynote presentation from FinCEN director Kenneth Blanco, as well as representatives from Coinbase, Bact, eToro, Gemini, BitGo, Ripple, and more. And we'll be diving into what these rules mean for both their businesses and crypto users. Amy, you've even before you know Bitcoin became a thing, you've been at the intersection of virtual currencies and payments and AML, really for more than a decade now. So maybe just kind of get us up to speed on your background and and also your current work at the Digital Chamber.
0: Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be working with you on this. I'm looking forward to next week's sessions as well. It looks really to be an amazing lineup. So my background is in private law practice. I've been advising companies on cross-border compliance programs for about 20 years before joining the chamber. A lot of it centered around anti-money laundering and counterterrorist finance um, and sanctions compliance. And yeah, I got started around 2010 with a virtual currency company that had run into some trouble. And then, you know, just fortunate enough to have companies that wanted to work with us and needed our help and just kept building and building from there and didn't look back. So now I've been at the chamber for three years and relevant to this conversation, you know, we have a number of working groups around different subject areas, one of which is our AML task force, which has a really vibrant leadership committee and just people who are really passionate about what they're doing.
2: Great, great. So maybe get us started here just by talking a bit about what these FATF rules are, what the travel rule is, give us kind of the TLDR on what these are and why they're being imposed on crypto businesses and really kind of how we arrived at this juncture.
0: Um, they're coming from the multilateral, multinational level through an organization called the FATF, which is the Financial Action Task Force. So it's a group of countries that come together and back in uh, the 90s put together 40 recommendations for money laundering and then some additional special recommendations for counterterrorist finance. They're called recommendations, and we'll talk about that you know, as we go on, but they're around principles that, um, you know, designed to harmonize the global landscape around AML compliance, what those compliance programs should look like, and some of the facets that are there. This process started uh, for what they're calling virtual assets and virtual asset service providers or VASPs, which is not a term I would have chosen, but that's where we are. It's geared towards virtual assets and VASPs. They started the process back as far as maybe 2014, 2015, with some guidance but then you know really applying what uh, the AML rules applicable to more traditional financial um, institutions to our industry. And as we all know, the principles around you know, we don't want money laundering, that makes sense, but how you go about it especially in our industry isn't always easy. Um and the one that everyone's talking about relates to the provisions around wire transfers again, a concept that relates to traditional notions of money or funds transfer, but how that actually plays out in practice in our industry brings in some added complications on the one hand, but benefits on the other.
2: Right. So one of the the reasons this is kind of confusing is because people look at these FATF guidelines, they see the word guidelines or recommendations. That seems to imply that these are just voluntary standards, right? Like best practices. So are these voluntary? And if they are, then why is this such a big deal at the moment?
0: You know, I think they use the word recommendations because it's multilateral. They have to respect state sovereignty. At the same time, each member state, each country needs to then take these recommendations and and implement them um, in their home country. Where this has a lot of teeth is each country will be on a review and an assessment cycle. And the FATF will assess how that country is doing with respect to the recommendations. And so if you start to fail at certain areas. Those might be noted in the report of your evaluation, your assessment. And if it's bad enough, you know, you'll have more and more significant notifications until there are a few countries that are on the so-called blacklist and you become known as a jurisdiction of higher risk. And those have implications. If you're a bank or anybody else that has anti-money laundering compliance programs, you tend to either create enhanced programs for those higher risk jurisdictions or you avoid them altogether depending on how you guess what you want to do and how you want to interact globally.
2: Sure. So moving on with the, to the specifics of the travel rule and like why this is, you know, in particular, such a thorny issue for crypto and for VASPs, as we're, we're calling crypto exchanges now. So traditional financial institutions have had to comply with the travel rule and these other guidelines for years. So this is not like a new thing at all. So explain why this is such a difficult and problematic issue for crypto VASPs to, to wrestle with here.
0: Yeah, well, this particular one around wire transfers is thorny because it requires the entity. So if you're an exchanger or a custodian of some type to obtain and hold certain information from your customers that want to engage in transactions, and then to transfer that information with a transfer of funds or Bitcoin or any other kind of virtual currency. So that information then has to travel. That's why the word travel rule comes into place in the U.S. and around the world that information has to travel with the transaction to the receiving institution. There's law enforcement objectives to that because you know that way financial institutions are required to have that information handy in their records and then the receiving institution also has it. So there's law enforcement benefits to that but as you can imagine, the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, isn't architected to carry that specific information. The information they want are things like your name, your address, The account number, that might be there, but those things aren't inherently in there because there's other indicators about who you are, but not your name or physical address, for example. In some cases, it could even include a social security number or taxpayer identification number. So there's a couple of challenges there. The primary one is this only applies between VASPs, so between regulated entities. So one regulated entity would have to know that there is another regulated entity holding the wallet at the other end of that transaction we don't have in place a system that readily identifies the entire universe of wallets that are out there. Certainly blockchain analytics companies do a great job at that, but it's not 100% currently. So how do you develop a system that enables the participants in it to know that the recipient is someone that is supposed to get this information? Because also, if you think about it, it's personally identifiable information. If someone can associate your name with your account, they can then know what your balance is and your transaction history because it's the blockchain, it's available online. So you don't want to send that information to a party that doesn't have an obligation to secure it. So those are some of the challenges Mm -hmm. that come into play and why you don't want to just send information out on every transaction. You really want to make sure that the person at the other end has the tools in place to respect it and receive it appropriately.
2: Thanks for bringing that down. That's helpful. So just to kind of paraphrase here. So say if I'm somebody here in the US, I want to send a remittance to the Philippines and I want to send it from my Coinbase wallet or my Coinbase account. So I would send out those funds to this address in the Philippines, this exchange in the Philippines under the assumption that well, we have no way of verifying whether this exchange is actually a regulated license exchange and that they will have the same sort of data security measures in place and privacy protections in place that an exchange like Coinbase might have, for instance, just to throw it a name. So is that kind of the issue? Like we're sending these funds and the data along with the funds, we have no way of verifying that the exchange that we're sending the data to has the same sort of obligations or protection standards in place to be housing that data. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, mostly. I mean, there are ways to be able to discern in many cases if it's a regulated institution at the end, but not 100%. The other challenge there is you don't know, okay, if that is, how do you determine that there's a registered or licensed entity in that country? Some countries publish their lists, but not all, and if it's up to date. And there's different analyses that you might have in place for Indonesia, like you said, versus China, versus other countries, you know, where there may or may not be the cybersecurity or privacy principles that, you know, a U.S. customer might expect. This is called the sunrise period, where we're all coming online to this. And each country is at a different stage in implementing it. So as we're all kind of coming online, it's not yet a harmonized playing field yet. And so there's just a little bit of bumpiness while we get there.
2: Sure. So it seems like the other issue here also is that, so the exchanges are basically being required to not only keep their customers' data, but also the data of their customers' counterparties. Is that essentially how this would work so that the exchanges would need to know, you know, who's transacting using their platform, but they would also need to know who their customers are transacting with on another platform.
0: Yeah. In the reverse, if you're the receiving institution, you need to have information on the originator of the transfer, the person sending it. At least that's how it works in the U.S. currently. Then also you, you have, in an, an era where data privacy and data protection are really important right now, you're creating a situation where you actually have increased risk.
2: So you're basically making these exchanges larger honeypots than they currently, I mean, let's face it, like we are in crypto, like things get hacked a lot. So you're basically making these exchanges more tantalizing to hackers than they currently are. Is that a shot? I
0: think that's another risk. Yeah. And how do we protect against that? And of course, what's the interplay there with GDPR and other privacy issues around the world? Those are still things that are being worked out. Um, sure, sure. I know.
2: I know there's a number of different solutions that folks in the industry are working on that are building to try to address this issue. And I think there's some really great stuff being done. Could you just kind of walk us through, I know there's a big array of different ideas that folks have have put forth and proposals that are being worked on. Some are basically like a centralized, basically recreating like the SWIFT network for, except for crypto exchanges. Others are a bit more of like a decentralized kind of protocol type solution. Maybe kind of talk through, you know, what's being worked on and, and what some of the pros and cons are of each of each approach.
0: Yeah, so there's two different kind of avenues of things that I've been seeing, and there may be more. But one is one that we helped to co-found with two other trade groups, Adaxa and GDF, around developing a messaging standard. So it's not focused on the software solution; it's focused on harmonizing and standardizing the types of data that are going to be transferred between, so that you can globally No matter what solution you decide on or how the solution evolves, because we just don't know what solution is, you know, how those are going to be at the end of the day, you can still use the standard to transmit the data. So that work is actually complete. And we have our plenary tomorrow where we will hopefully, you know, approve that standard. And it's gotten a lot of good reception, both with the FATF and with other players in the marketplace and some of the software solutions providers too have said that they would um, incorporate it. So then that leads to, okay, the software solution, how is this gonna be architected, right? And you brought up you know, a couple different ways. There's companies like CipherTrace with Trisa, CoolBidX, NetKey, um, the OpenVASP network, Coinbase, Ripple has a solution. So there's a number of folks that are building out solutions for this. One of the early on questions they have to consider is, do you want this to be, like you said, a centralized network like Swift, where the data comes in, that body holds, you know, and transfers out, like there is that kind of hub. There's a lot of reasons why that's a good thing, you know, then no one entity is kind of holding that data and all that kind of responsibility, theoretically might be in that group. The counter to that is it's a little bit antithetical to our industry, you know, to have this solution, you know, and so we're already kind of harmonized with existing financial services laws. Do we really want to then build this too? And so there are others that are looking at more peer-to-peer exchanges um, and other things. We're going to have to work that out. I think the question, you know, will there be multiple solutions that people use, kind of like how a lot of people use different AML softwares? I know some financial institutions use two just to kind of cover their bases because each one has a different Or will there just be one and everybody uses that? I don't know the answer to that yet.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the big question that that I've been wrestling with. Is this sort of one of these QWERTY keyboard type situations where maybe QWERTY is not the ideal configuration of a keyboard, but it was just the first one that got adoption, so everyone else just started using it? Or is there a market for these types of solutions where we want to have two, three, four, five different options floating around? I think that's, I guess you can kind of argue that either way, but that's one of the interesting questions that I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answers to. It'd be interesting to see what kind of narratives emerge on that front. Switching gears here slightly, I wanted to ask, we've most of our conversation has really kind of revolved around like the responsibility of VASPs and crypto exchange operators. And obviously, those are the ones who are going to be boring the brunt of the cost and the, and the risk associated with this. But I, I wanted to touch upon, you know, just what do these rules mean for kind of your average crypto, your retail trader or your hodler who's got an account on Gemini and Coinbase? Why should these folks be paying attention to I mean, obviously nobody wants to end up like Virgil Griffith, which is obviously kind of an extreme case, but I think there's a real risk here of running awry of a law that most people probably might not even know exists. Maybe talk a bit about like why the average crypto user investor should be at least knowledgeable of this issue.
0: Yeah, it's almost more of a consumer awareness issue for individuals. Because so it doesn't apply to us if we're just, you know, you and I, I give you 20 Bitcoin because I'm generous. It applies, you know, when there's like this third party doing this activity on your behalf. But as a customer, they're going to have to ask you for your name in the U.S., date of birth, physical address, social, you know, just depending on what the triggers are. I mean, in the U.S., it's a $3,000 threshold. At the multilateral level, they allow for a $1,000 de minimis. So we'll see how that plays out. But there's just going to be more information required of you so that the companies, if you're using a company like a Coinbase or an eToro or any other, a Gemini that they're going to need certain information from you to satisfy their own KYC and AML obligations. So that's why you might see that come through. Whereas, you know, you may have had a different expectation before.
2: Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And then quick pause here, just to reiterate that we are working on um, a consensus for consensus tribute, we're putting together a travel rule workshop on Wednesday, May 13th from 10 AM to 1 PM. Eastern we'll be diving into all things travel rule related and around the corner next month is when these rules will come into play, so it's very timely. We'll have FinCEN director Kenneth Blanco coming to fill us in on his views on COVID-19, and also how FinCEN is responding, his, FinCEN's cur- current outlook on the crypto industry and relationship with the industry. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about FinCEN a bit later in the program here. We've spent most of this kind of looking at the technicalities of the travel rule, what it is, what it isn't, what it, what it requires out of exchanges and users, etc. And I want to touch a bit more on some of the more meta themes here that are associated with this. And I think one way or another, you have to admit that crypto is basically designed to like circumvent all this stuff, right? And there's one part of the community that is pro-circumventing legacy finance. There's one part of the community that's sort of like, let's just kind of play along for better or for worse. Like that's just kind of how it's, it's bifurcated at this point. But there are a lot of folks in the industry that will say privately that they're fairly disappointed with how the FATF has responded here. And the argument is is something that we've heard on all these different questions of crypto regulation, right? Which is that you're taking a outdated legacy framework that's 50 years old and you're shoehorning this innovative new asset class, this innovative new payment system into this old outdated archaic framework and it's just not gonna work, right? And on the flip side, you know, it's, it's like, okay, it's, it's, it's human nature to always say that this time is different when in reality, it's usually not, right? We, like history proves that. So my question to you, Amy is, how well do you think the FATF kind of wrestled with some of these issues and this notion of crypto being you know, a fundamentally new medium of exchange for transferring value? I mean, I know they posted a lot of consultations with the industry. They tried to get a lot of industry feedback. I mean, how well do you think they responded to the concerns of the industry about this issue of just kind of shoehorning it into this old system?
0: I think that the FATF is like many government agencies that we've seen, which is, you know, there's folks within it that really understand it or, you know, a higher level of understanding and engagement. And then there's, there's some that are critical or skeptical of the intentions. I think that the FATF did engage, I mean, I know that they engaged with the industry. I was fortunate enough with a number of um, my colleagues in the industry to attend the industry forum that they held a year ago in Vienna to talk about these issues. That said, you know, we still have a challenge in this industry to, especially around AML. I mean, AML has been an issue since this started and, you know, show that the industry and demonstrate how serious, how important AML compliance and counter finance issues are. That's been our objective for the last two years um, that we've been engaged with the FATF. And that, that message is getting heard. We've been on a number of industry-specific calls where we've checked in with members of the FATF, with it, which included regulators from around the world, listening to the progress that the industry is making, and that's having an impact. So while I, I agree, I hear you, we're, that's one part of it. We're, we're recreating, I hear you. what you're saying, we're recreating the old systems into this new framework that's better. I think we're seeing that across, I mean, you see it in the securities laws, you see it with tax. The regulators struggle with applying their own governing statutes to this new thing. And at the moment, that's how we're getting regulators comfortable with it. We will need to evolve beyond that. And I think the travel rule is the perfect place for that to happen. And and we're trying to do that, actually. We're encouraging FinCEN to look at and to reevaluate the travel rule to take into account the unique, the inherent attributes of blockchain technology and blockchain analytics that a lot of our member companies like Chainalysis, Elliptic, Cypher, trace, and others have out there, and how that can be better than name, address, date of birth, and social security number. I mean, who thinks that your social security number is really a foolproof identifier of who you are? And these companies, I think, can do it better. And so we need to be able to figure out how to use those and work those into the compliance expectations.
2: That's a great segue into another another session actually that we'll be hosting at Consensus Distributed, which I'm pretty excited about. We're calling a, a future of blockchain analytics. It'll be like a panel and then sort of an ask them anything format as well. So we'll have leaders from four of the top blockchain analytics firms, Chainalysis, Cyphertrace, Elliptic, and CoinFirm. They'll all be on the set together and they'll be discussing essentially how these services can really, I mean, the key question here is like, how can these services really foster crypto adoption and ensuring financial integrity in three, five, 10 years as the crypto ecosystem expands. And I think one of the questions that I wanna tease out in in this session and other sessions at the conference is really the efficacy of legacy tools like KYC as a means of weeding out bad actors from the financial system. And, And I think we can all agree, generally speaking, that we don't want criminals using crypto to carry out or commit crimes. We have different definitions of what a criminal is, but generally speaking, we don't want that behavior But I think the point of contention here is really just that we have these new tools at our disposal uh, to track and prevent this type of activity beyond just simply like ramping up KYC requirements, which, I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, like this stuff has never been that effective to begin with. And Amy, I guess I'm just kind of curious as to your thoughts on what other tools we have at our disposal here. And is this something that, that the FATF has really taken into account when preparing this prior to issuing this guidance?
0: You know, I think some of that, I mean, it was still too new. I I think they, for the time being, they were fixated on the fact that companies in this space need to know who the counterparties are to a transaction. And literally just that, you know, I think actually at consensus last year, Under Secretary Mandelker had said that it's technology, you can figure it out how to do it. I think that, you know, to some extent, that's been a little bit of the perspective And what we're trying to do, what we are doing is educating everyone as to where the challenges are. I mean, we all know Swift was not built in a day or a year. You know, all these systems um, has taken time. And I don't think it's gonna take us as much time as it took for Swift and other things. But I think that more can be done to help enhance um, people's understanding of how geolocation services work. Mm -hmm. I know that FATF is At the same time, concurrently with this, is looking at digital identity, and I think that goes hand in hand. You know how the digital identity work fits into the travel rule issues, as well as just AML compliance generally. And that's hard. I mean, digital identity is is uh, to me one of the great stories to tell about blockchain technology, and it's hard. So we need to bring all those together to make an impact.
2: Right. Right. We've got a question here from Jeff Jeffries. Jeff's question is: What cost-benefit analysis was undertaken to assess the burden of the recommendations? That's a great question, Amy. You're you're probably as close to this whole process as anybody. I mean, what's your take on that?
0: I mean, I'm not aware of a cost-benefit analysis, and maybe that's why Jeff asked the question. Thank you, Jeff. But uh, you know, it may be that you know this is already imposed on other financial institutions, and so therefore it needs to be imposed here. I think. Also, what was at play here is that the U.S. had the presidency of the FATF last year, and their objective was to enact this rule or enable this rule before their presidency expired in July last year. Because in the U.S., we have a wire transfer rule that FinCEN believes applies. They've said that it's their view that it applies. We've actually raised some issues there as a trade association, and they wanted to have that apply globally so that U.S. companies weren't disadvantaged with the compliance obligation that others didn't have.
2: Sure, sure. So, talk talk a bit more about that. That's interesting. That I'm not sure most people recognize that this whole process was essentially really spearheaded by the U.S., who was the president of the FATF last year, and this was really Treasury and FinCEN's initiative to bring other countries up to speed with what was already essentially the law here in the United States. I know there's a big question of as to whether the travel rule actually applied to crypto exchanges here in the U.S. or not. So maybe you can try to dive into that. But like the idea here was to sort of raise the standard across the board. And this would be, you know, ultimately be like a benefit to the U.S.-based exchanges because it would sort of level the playing field globally to some extent. Is that, is that an accurate characterization?
0: I think you said it really well, and I think it also enables better global AML compliance. You know, you don't find activity moving offshore because we've got stricter requirements here in the U.S. than others do elsewhere. So yeah, the FATF presidency was on a rotating one-year basis. After this year, it's moving to a two-year basis, which I think is helpful. I think it's hard to do something in just one year. Um, And China has the presidency now, but the U.S. had it last year, and it was an objective of the U.S. Treasury Department to enable these rules and tie the recommendations to virtual assets.
2: So China Uh, is the current president of the FATF now? Correct. Have they weighed in on this at all? Is this, uh, I mean, obviously... There's a lot of crypto activity in China. What's been their position on on this issue?
0: As far as I can tell, they've stayed the course. So the timing there was that um, after a year's time, so this was enabled around June of last year. So June of this year, which is coming up, FATF was going to assess countries' implementation and progress towards implementing this rule. It seems that there's been some delay in that because of COVID and just the global economic and healthcare crisis that's going on. Um, There were supposed to be some meetings, you know, April, May timeframe that either were shifted to virtual or had to be postponed. So that I'm not sure yet that timeline might slip a little bit um, because how can regulators come in house and start looking at your business or come into the government and talk to, you know, that there's some just logistical. But that was a big deal. And it continues to be a big deal, how countries are going to come online, because the real issue now is going to be how are countries implementing it? There's not like a form law that, you know, the FAT have said, here it is, and now you implement this. There's principles, there's recommendations, and then the countries have some discretion on how they're going to interpret that. Right. And then they'll be assessed on how they interpret it. The issue is, well, how are those being proposed? We've seen some countries already start that process, in the, you know, the EU with the AML directive. And so really what people around the world need to do is look and see what's happening in your home country. And how that's being implemented and raise issues with your government if it's if you know if, if it's not following what, what we think it should.
2: I think one of the other confusing aspects of this is that FATF in itself is not necessarily going to be coming and kicking down your door in San Francisco for failing to comply with these rules, right? It's they're they're setting the rules, you know, these are you know guidelines that individual countries need to implement some version of them. And then the inter- individual countries will be responsible for enforcing those rules. And then, if those countries do not enforce the rules, they will be essentially kind of blacklisted, or they'll kind of end up in the doghouse of the global financial community. Essentially, so when we say the FATF guidelines, the FATF is not going to show up at your house and shut down your exchange because you're you're not KYCing people properly or something. They're delegating that authority to like the local jurisdictions, who are then responsible for enforcing, or right. for legislating and then enforcing as they see fit. Is that correct?
0: That's right. And there's just different stages of implementation. So I think Canada has already worked it in. Singapore recently had some activity there. Just it's kind of case by case. But then it's your home regulator that might have something to say about it. The one thing, though, that I would say is that I wouldn't put it off. You know, that I don't think that by saying that, that means, okay, so we don't have to worry about it until, you know, we see something from our government. Um, this is something that people should be thinking about now. You can't just flip a switch and it's fixed or done or you're ready you know, you need to start looking at how to use these compliance tools now. And to my knowledge, I don't know anybody that's not using them. So that's all positive. I don't think anybody isn't. But you know, in the US too, there's other things that already apply, um, even before, you know, what the FATF did. So it's important Mm -hmm. to kind of keep in mind that we're just talking about the travel rule right now, but there's lots of stuff out there. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of compliance obligations. um, And you want to make sure you're on top of those things.
2: Sure. So Shifting out here globally, what are the implications here for kind of the power balance between U.S. exchanges and overseas exchanges, right? It seems that this would be a boon to the U.S. exchanges who have, for the most part, already been following most of these rules in terms of kind of expanding their presence globally. So maybe talk a little bit how this, whether it's in terms of exchange volumes or whether it's in terms of the regulatory arbitrage game that people in crypto have been playing for years. How do you see this playing out?
0: I mean, I do see it generally as a benefit for U.S. companies, if you're a U.S. exchange, because it does, I mean, I think more compliance affords a competitive advantage. If you can meet those standards, if you can get those approvals, you know, a lot of times people will use that to gain a competitive advantage, whether that's the BIT license, whether that's some type of SEC or CFTC authorization, I'm talking about all in the U.S., but or nationwide licensing regime program. So those can be differentiators. Compliance is expensive, so that does make it a barrier to entry as well. You're kind of balancing the analysis of are these companies suitable to safe keep your money, the funds, the Bitcoin, whatever, to wanting to make sure we're not stifling innovation and allowing new and unique and important products onto the market.
2: Right. I know there's a lot of concern that this is becoming just kind of another front in the you know kind of the regulatory capture game, kicking away the ladder essentially um i mean obviously as you said compliance is expensive and if you're a you know upstart buccaneer in crypto exchange it seems like the barriers to entry now to complying with all of these rules are going to be significantly higher than they would have been 2 3 years ago i mean i'm just thinking of just how how binance went from so zero to the top exchange in 6 months obviously that was almost eternity ago in crypto years but i mean it seems like these new rules are going to afford a significant competitive advantage to the existing market participants and be a pretty huge hurdle for anybody who's trying to compete with them.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the one, the good thing about that is that there's a lot of great compliance tools out there that folks can utilize, but you need smart compliance officers working in-house for you. And I see some of them that are on this call. So, you know, they're really savvy and you got to make sure that you enable them to do their job. Those are all part of an important compliance program. So I think there's tools out there to, to make this piece of it um, a little easier, but at the same time, I can't put enough emphasis on supporting uh, all those compliance officers out there that are dedicating their lives to making this happen. And it's not easy work.
2: Sure, sure. And I know it's, it's tricky because I think there's fears of kind of like a bifurcation of the crypto world, right? Where you have one portion that is moving more towards sort of the transparent KYC. We're going to kind of play by the same rules as the legacy financial system. And the people investing in these or using these platforms would probably be your institutional investor types, or maybe even more just like your mom and pop hodlers who are just like, hey, I want to have some exposure to Bitcoin and I don't want it to get stolen. So I want, you know, a regulated platform. I want the same, my expectations are the same as if I was using my online broker, Charles Schwab or E-Trade or whatnot. And then you have this whole other community of crypto where the reason that this, this technology was even developed was basically to circumvent all this other stuff. There's, there's a tension. I think there's this inherent tension here that I don't see how it resolves necessarily. And I think there's a concern that we have a forking of, okay, we have transparent assets that are being tracked around the, you know, kind of the the known KYC network of exchanges. And then you have a lot of stuff underground that's either being you know, funneled using uh, various privacy enhancement uh, mechanisms or unlicensed offshore exchanges. And um, this is always going to happen, right? Like criminals are always going to find ways to like transact anonymously or whatnot. But I think part of the value proposition of crypto is that like, hey, I want my privacy and don't presume that I'm a criminal because I want privacy. That is sort of the ethos of this. It's like, You know, the default should be privacy first. And then if you have a compelling enough reason to come and surveil me and and take my information, then that's on you to to provide that. So I think there's some philosophical issues here, but I think there's also a, um, I think there's just an issue of fungibility, right? Like if you have coins that are being traded in the transparent network of KYC exchanges, and then you have a whole network of coins that are traded in kind of the underworld uh, or the, you know, non-KYC trading exchanges. There's not a lot of fungibility between those two worlds. So are we essentially reducing the fungibility of of these assets if if such a bifurcation were to really be exacerbated?
0: I guess I'd first point out that not all activity that's not on an exchange is bad. I mean, uh, in a traditional marketplace, if I gave you $20 to say thanks for sharing the pizza, that's perfectly valid. Nobody knows that I had $20 and gave it to you. You know, Bank doesn't know it. I think we need to carve a space out for that because just because activity is not happening on an exchange doesn't mean it's illicit. And I think that's important for even regulators to understand too. That said, some of it might be, of course.
1: Support for this podcast and this message come from ARISX. With ARISX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Development Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at Stellar.org Coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot C-O slash coindesk. Yeah.
0: After the financial crisis, I think there has been quite two things, I think, converge on this. One is the September 11th attacks, and a lot of uh, rules were put in place to get at terrorist finance. And then second, the financial crisis that we had in 2008-2009, where we really ramped up the regulations that apply to financial services. And if you take both of those, it's really hard to get out from that. Right now, with a new technology that folks don't always understand or don't understand all the ins and outs, So what I'm finding is happening is that a lot of government agencies, whether they're multilateral or just the individual department, they get more comfortable with it if you can fit it into something that they understand. And I think that's what we're going through right now. I mean, if you're just kind of looking at a horizon of how do we achieve blockchain nirvana to get to its real benefit, its real state, we are having to go through this regulatory hurdle on some of the old rules into the new tech to get people comfortable. And once we get them there, you can start to see why well, you don't need this anymore. We can do it this way. In the securities law, you know, you can see it where they're reluctant to use blockchain as a source of record for transactions. But then you see they issue a no action letter for Paxos to utilize blockchain for that, for, you know, in a, it's a pilot kind of program. But so I think we'll see glimmers of that. It's slower than some might like. So we need to keep pushing for that. And I, I agree. We're definitely not taking advantage of all that blockchain has to offer and all that our analytics can do to be better at compliance in many ways.
2: Well thanks for that. I think one of the other kind of interesting, you know, more like philosophical level questions surrounding this is is really kind of what you're touching on with, you know, the heightened financial or compliance requirements that banks and financial service institutions are subjected to, you know, post 9/11 and particularly the post 2008-2009 financial crisis when I mean I remember one of my first big stories that I broke as a reporter was I mean, I spent months just combing through the records of all of these agencies and all the fines that were assessed on various financial institutions. And it was something like, you know, $100, $200 billion, and that was in 2014. And just, you know, like just a, from 2011 to 2014, there's like $100 billion worth of fines levied against various finance institutions just issued by U.S. regulators. And the, the conversation of de-risking here is one that I think we really have to think long and hard about because stepping back you know, because of these compliance requirements, banks have less incentive to onboard higher risk customers. If they're not going to make any money by doing so, they'll probably lose money by doing so, which then leads to a significant portion of the population not having access to uh, or sufficient access to financial services. And we all know that crypto people talk about this all the time. We all know this. This is one of the problems that we've been trying to solve since like day one. I mean, this was the core value proposition of Libra that when they came out you know, about a year ago. You know, So I think By applying the same rules and standards to crypto that we apply to traditional financial services, it seems like we're not helping to solve the de-risking problem. We're just continuing it. We're just perpetuating it. Look, look, if, if these people could pass KYC tests, they would have a bank account, right? How are you approaching this whole, I mean, this seems like a real fundamental dichotomy here that we need to wrestle with in terms of kind of this core mission of crypto, which is to empower people financially. but then we're being kind of, for lack of a better word, we're just kind of recreating the wheel with some of the same perhaps caving or capitulating or just sort of going along with what the existing financial system has dictated. How do you process that? That's a very, you know, unenviable position to be in, but how are you kind of balancing that all out?
0: You know, that's one of the issues that people are grappling with. I mean, even FinCEN has issued guidance on that, or, and I say guidance, it didn't solve the problem, but it just said you shouldn't de-risk across categories of customers and things like that in 2005 and 2015. So, I mean, obviously it's an ongoing problem. And even then it was with respect to money services businesses. So like Western Union, MoneyGram, those types of organizations that deal with remittances were experiencing it then. Now our industry is also experiencing it. There needs to be a solution there. I I mean, you've expressed the problem really well. You know, when you've got high-risk jurisdictions or high-risk customers how do you justify the expense? And banks have pulled out of that business, having business in Africa or you know, even in our home state of Minnesota, the remittances from certain groups there have been cut off. We need to figure that out because then what do those people do? And it all becomes that kind of underground or shadow banking economy that you don't want, you don't want to see. It's better for these people to be a part of the financial system for a whole number of reasons than, than to be excluded. Libra is going to have a challenge there. I thought that even before they've made the recent modifications to their platform, but I hope they can solve it. I hope they can resolve that. If they can, I think that would be an extraordinary development uh, that they've achieved. But I don't have a, I don't have a solution yeah. for that.
2: And I think even after, uh, I remember last summer, uh, Coindesk's new chief content officer, Michael Casey, came out with a really good column that was highlighting just the dichotomy here where... I mean, Facebook, Libra, they really just sort of ran into a brick wall here where they come out and their their kind of their whole value proposition is, hey, half the world's on Facebook. We're gonna provide financial services to these people using Libra and it's gonna be great. We're gonna underbank all these unbanked people, it's gonna be amazing. And then you know they get dragged before Congress. And then, you know, they're making this pitch that we're gonna provide all these financial services, to these you know, underserved populations. And then they're saying, but we're also gonna fully comply with all of the existing AML KYC requirements, right? And it's like, well. If all these people could pass KYC, or, or, you know, like they would have bank accounts now. That was kind of the seminal point when I I really realized like something's gonna have to give at some point. And I think Libra was kind of like the initial battering ram of sorts. You, you know, do you think the way that they've restructured is going to be conducive to to making some meaningful progress here?
0: It seems like it should. I mean, they they expressly reference FATIF, you know, terminology. So clearly they've been talking to FATF my understanding is that they've agreed to stay uh, as a more centralized model, which also helps give some accountability to the system um, from a regulator's perspective. So those all all things should help. We have to go from there. I mean, I think, you know, Libra was unique. I think the U.S. Congress reference um, brought in a lot of things that weren't really part of Calibra. It was specific to Facebook. So. Yeah. If we could separate those kinds of conversations and instead focus on the the model itself, some in the crypto community as an ethos don't want to see centralized models like that. But I think they've had to do that from a regulatory perspective. And I I hope that that, it does seem like they're meeting what you would expect.
2: Sure. Sure. Going back here a little bit to our initial conversation or earlier in the conversation, we were talking about individual countries implementing their own version of these FATF recommendations. Could you give maybe a bit more update on, on maybe like who's doing what? And, I mean, is there any good or bad examples of, of countries that have kind of done this the right way, maybe doing this the wrong way? Are there countries that we should be like looking to as like, hey, these guys have a, a rational, like thoughtful solution here that we should be emulating? How much kind of progress is being made here?
0: I can speak to a few of those. I mean, I think a lot of people like what Singapore, you know, how they've gone about it, the monetary Authority of Singapore there is, has been known to be a pretty progressive, open-minded regulator. Well, at the same time, they're a financial center, so they understand AML and the the importance of that. So I think Singapore has gotten a lot of good um, reception. On the other hand, Switzerland, while I think that they've had a lot of great clarity in this space on, on just digital assets generally, with respect to the FATF, my understanding is, and I'm not sure if it's changed since I've heard this, but they had a requirement that VASPs could only transfer to other VASPs. Uh, which is a pretty stringent requirement. It makes everybody go through the regulated financial system. So that may be the other end of it. I know in in the EU, they've got the AML Directive 5, which brings um, these countries into scope. And, you know, there's some concern around how certain member countries there are implementing it. And then in the U.S., FinCEN came out in May of last year, and they take the position that travel rules applied since at least 2013 and maybe even back to 2011. Our perspective at the chamber is that we've done some extensive legal analysis and believe that this rule requires a formal rulemaking. It's an administrative process that government agencies need to go through. And so we've suggested to them to uh, publish a a proposed rulemaking, which is basically an agency saying, FATF is requiring us to do this. Here's the proposed way in which we're going to go about it. You explain why this and that is in there. Then you ask for industry comment. You give maybe two, three months for industry to comment, you know, then the agency will assess that and then issue a final rule with an effective date. And that process is designed to get industry feedback. You want regulations to be practical that businesses can use and meet and, you know, achieve law enforcement objectives. So we're encouraging that. You know, I think there is an opportunity for that. I think there's some distinctions in what the FATF did that may require some updating to the um, travel rule. And just the way the travel rules is written, I don't think it's perfectly situated to the situation. So I think there could be an opportunity to make some adjustments with, sure, sure. which has been your point earlier. Sure, sure, sure.
2: One other question I had was the guidelines will come into play in June, right? So just about a month from now or a little over a month from now. And you know, throughout the rest of 2020, um, as countries are beginning to start implementing these rules on their own versions. And I mean, what what are the key things that you're going to be watching for over the rest of the year? What are kind of the key developments that, I mean, even that people in the you know the crypto community at large should be following?
0: I mean, from my perspective, you know, f- we're following what the companies are doing that are developing solutions for this, helping to enable that to happen. For example, We've invited um, those that are members that are offering some, uh, building some of those solutions to present on, an update on where they're at to our AML task force later this month, making sure that the industry is aware of what those solutions are to give them the best kind of platform to be used. So that's to me, that, that along with the standard that we've just developed around the, the messaging standard, to make sure that that gets adopted by the solution providers. I mean, to me, that's, that's the hardest part. Sure. You need a system in place. And where is it that industry starts to coalesce? And, and where do we find um, some common ground?
2: Sure, sure. So another uh, shameless consensus distributed plug here. But as part of our travel rule workshop, we'll have Sean Jones, who is the convener of the Intervast Messaging Working Group, which Amy's a part of. She'll be presenting on the new standard that is hopefully being unveiled next week. And then also, we're going to be doing a, a special session with a number of these travel rule solutions providers who will be coming and talking a bit about their solution and what they're building and kind of the logic behind it, how they're going about it, et cetera, et cetera. So we're really trying to kind of help educate the industry on this important topic as a part of consensus this year. So the last question I would have, Amy, is, is really I think this is a really great example of how the crypto industry has really kind of risen. I mean, they were, the crypto industry was basically handed a really monumental task last year when these guidelines were handed down and, and basically dictated to the industry to comply with. And it seems that the industry has done a really good job in responding to that. And, you know, I know amongst a lot of regulators there's a decent amount of goodwill and they're and they're really willing to work with the industry. And amongst some others, they're kind of like, we wish we could just wash these guys out and get rid of them. I guess I'm just wondering, like, how has the industry's image in the eyes of these global multinational regulator types changed throughout this whole process from from your purview?
0: My impression is that it's improved vastly. The level of engagement that we've had and just the kind of level of conversation and respect, I think, has really improved since maybe a year, even just a year ago. You know, it's a tricky area. I mean, you look at, I mean, think about the traditional banking sector. Um, just a couple of years ago, you could say that every major bank in the U.S. was under an AML enforcement order or just coming out from one. And then you started to see some of that activity move down to the middle tier banks and et cetera. I mean, anti-money laundering issues are a challenge for everyone across financial services sector worldwide. And it's no different for us. The perception is that, you know, the industry is folks in hoodies in their garage and whilst that may be true, especially in these kind of hunkered down days, <laughs> but- um, We're like, all in
2: hoodies in our garage now, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. That's just a, a Star Wars background. But these are professionals who have been working for decades, oftentimes from past lives that have yeah. um, really important backgrounds. So they're starting to see that and that discourse is changing.
2: For sure. So one last quick question from the audience and then we'll have to wrap up here, but this question is around, have you tried to articulate voluntary rules for compliance as an alternative to imposed rules from the US government? And I think, I think this question is kind of getting at the role of like an SRO or an industry regulatory body. I know there's a bunch of folks kind of do, with various irons in the fire on this front. So maybe, maybe just address that before we wrap up.
0: I mean, could they be voluntary? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how that would work. I think if they're not voluntary, how would there be any repercussions for non-compliance? And then, does it become a, um, a competitive advantage to be compliant or or not? You know, at that point. But if it is an SRO question, you know, in this space, the FAD have said that you can't use self-regulatory organizations. Um, I personally don't agree with that. I think that there should be some adjustment there. Um, that was in the guidelines that came out, not the actual like written recommendation. So it's possible that there could be some shifting there. You know, there are some, the VCA in the U.S. or the JVCEA in Japan. I mean, there's some efforts underway. But for an SRO, the real teeth of an SRO is to have some enforcement responsibility. And maybe there's more to that question that I'm not picking up on. I do think it's hard in that context for it to be voluntary.
2: Sure, sure. The industry is not mature enough to the point where there is kind of an industry body that can really, like, you know, even if an SRO would be, you know, the if would would recognize that or allow that. I don't know if we're like necessarily the place where the the whole industry can coalesce around one body as the representative. I still think we're a little too fragmented for that. Um, so anyway, we're gonna wrap up here. We're we've reached uh, top of the hour. So Amy, thanks so much for joining us. This has been really helpful having you here to help kind of make sense of what is an important but kind of difficult to understand topic. And We'll be having a lot more of this type of content at Consensus Distributed next week. And then next Thursday, our very own Bailey Reutzel will be joining us and talking with Felipe Duarte of the Dow Canvas. So be sure to register for Consensus Distributed next week. It's free. No reason not to. We'll be doing a lot more content around the travel rule and everything else as it relates to crypto. So thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you.